Like the character she plays on her Emmy-nominated show, Russian Doll, which is in its second season on Netflix, Natasha Lyonne has lived many lives. On Russian Doll, which Lyonne co-created, her character dies at the end of a tumultuous emotional evening, only to be reborn again and again. Similarly, Lyonne's career path has been fascinating and bumpy. She was a child actor, appearing on shows like Pee Wee's Playhouse, and I first became enthralled with her when she starred in the film The Slums of Beverly Hills. Leon's low, smoky voice and wild curls were unique and instantly memorable. It was a coming-of-age film, but this was not your typical teenager. Leon was at once utterly modern and a throwback to an earlier, grittier time in cinema when women talked tough and had bite. In the early 2000s, Leon went through a dark period of drug addiction and medical problems, but she never stopped acting. After checking herself into a rehab center in 2006, Leon has not used drugs since. Around 10 years ago, she reemerged as an actor in Orange is the New Black, and then there was Russian Doll. That series was a perfect showcase for Leon's whip-smart, street urchin sophistication. I watched the show over and over. I consider Natasha Leon to be a national treasure. It gives me great pleasure to welcome the one and only Natasha Leone to Five Things. One, two, three, four, five. Questions with Lynn. Questions with Lynn. So I'm very excited to speak with Natasha Leone. How are you, Natasha? Hi, Lynn. So tell me what person in your life had particular impact on you? Well, Nora Ephron is definitely a very significant figure in my story and also just so unexpected, I guess. Um, by the way, that's a drilling sound outside my house, just because I want to make sure you know that we're in Manhattan. <laughs> it's funny that if you hear a drill anywhere but Manhattan, you're immediately offended and start calling around to see how to stop it. But in Manhattan, you just accept it as the sound in, of the city. Um, why wouldn't it be there? <laughs> How did you meet? How did you meet Nora? How did Nora meet you? I guess I didn't realize. Sort of my first gig as really just a glorified extra was, I guess, being picked out of some lineup by Mike Nichols for Heartburn. Uh, Nora. Oh, Brown, really? Which, yeah, which was obviously based on her life and you know marriage to Carl Bernstein, and and. Uh, They've actually got great kids that I'm friends with. I ended up so tight with the family and with Delia, her sister, and Jacob. Yeah, and uh, and Max. And uh, so, you know, I had done that when I was like five years old. I'm like sleeping on some guy's lap at at a wedding. Ah. And then I guess uh, she reminded me of this when I eventually worked with her. But I guess right after Slums of Beverly Hills, which is like 1998, I think I I took some sort of meeting with her that I only vaguely remember. And it's almost like in my mind, it was at the Dakota, but I don't think it was. <laughs> and then, you know, I, when I was sort of like, you know, coming back in this whole phase two, post-Junkie Dumb, I was, you know, did some audition for something called Love Loss and What I Wore, which was right with her sister. And it was going to be, a, you know, with um, Tyne Daly and what would eventually become, you know, Carol Kane and Tracy Ross and... Rita Wilson and, and all these extraordinary women ended up uh, being in it. And uh, I went to this uh, audition room sort of in Midtown, almost like a Broadway, you know, rehearsal room. And I was in a really, I was having a really hard time with a boyfriend at the time. And I said, 
you know, ladies, I'm so glad to be here. Here's my memorized, you know, monologues for you. And I did them. And I said, but really, while I have you, since you're the two experts on relationships, if you could just give me a little advice here, and it doesn't matter if I get the job, I just need to steal you for this. Well, I see a free therapy session, which is essentially what I'm doing in showbiz more globally at all times. I'm like, I've gained access to people that are just tremendous thinkers. And regardless of the outcome of the job, really, can you help me? Uh, trying to crack this case. And so they were so great. The next thing I knew I'm doing this, this play. And it was like being brought into this whole sisterhood. Of course, Nora is married to Nick Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas and many other things. And she would invite me to poker games with like Bob Balaban. And it was just, we'd go to Orso. She would just, you know, she was always really looking out for me. I, I had to have open heart surgery was such a big deal. And she made sure I had the best room at, Columbia Presbyterian, wow. Clinton surgeon. And like, you know, I woke up to like, you know, roses and Chloe was there with like a cashmere robe and they were determined to take care of me and see me through this thing. Oh my God. You know, and she gave me sort of my, my first gig back, which was like, you know, a reading um, of this, you know, this we were doing like, you know, a uh, two weeks of rehearsal for some new play that Tom Hanks was going to do. And just so she could make sure to look out for me that nobody thought that it was you know, drug related and that I was still working. Like she really just, you know, and I remember she had me stay at her house. Right. And, I remember you stayed at her house. Yeah. In Bel Air. And, and uh, I was like, are you crazy? And she was like, oh, get over it. She's like, everybody has problems. You don't think, and, you know, <laughs> of course her family history is like, they're great. Um, they're, you know, screenwriters of the golden age of Hollywood. And they were sort of, you know, alcoholics or best friends with Oscar Levant. And it was just kind of this, revelation moment that sort of in life, everybody goes through things. And even the people that seem most together have a total comprehensive understanding of what it means to be a three-dimensional human being. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, we are not the, the sort of some totals of our, like, you know, our dips in life, that life is just kind of this wave that you ride and everybody and everybody's family and everybody personally and professionally and romantically and health-wise, we all kind of have a ride. I just think that she was such a sort of blue chip symbol of, you know, wellness and togetherness in a way mm -hmm. that she really, you know, helped me understand that I was okay, you know, and, and Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell was also in that play. And she would always say like, you're not the, um, you know, irregular sheets at the 50% bin at Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, like, there is no brokenness here. It's just experience. So I think that that whole sort of ride I took with those women really shifted. And of course, was really further encouraged by um, Amy Poehler later and Jenji Cohen and, and Cindy Holland. And you know what I mean? It really yes. became this sort of more global. Of course, my relationship with Maya got deeper. Yes. With Maya Rudolph and with Chloe of uh, 70 got deeper. And, you know, everybody started really making things. You know, Clea Duvall is, is my best friend from But I'm a Cheerleader years ago, and she started directing. Like, everybody sort of started to take hold of this kind of, you know, autonomy. Of course, in a moment when the world said, no, no more of that, please. Yeah. But I think it really did shift something. I really do. It's also interesting because Nora was supportive of women, and that's not always the case, as you un unfortunately probably know. You've come across women that actually support you and other women, which is quite rare, or do you not find it to be rare? 
Yeah, no, I for sure was somebody who my aesthetic was so enmeshed in sort of a tomboy, uh-huh. not even tomboy. I would say it's like, it's very interesting for me to see all this gender stuff, you know, now as like, you know, like a 40 year old person, because I think, you know, so much of my trip was, you know, everyone from Orson Welles to Warren Oates, Blue Reed, you know, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, like those were my guys, you know, yeah, and even yeah. you know, from a filmmaker standpoint, like every Bunuel and Lynch and Cassavetes and, you know, like those were my people, Nick Rogue, you know, so. I know you're um, very Robert Mitchum. Yes. I love Robert Mitchum, you know, and I always sort of identified a bit with like, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's Moxie or, yeah. you know, Bo or Betty Davis. I, I sort of understood that too, but more than that, really understood the boys club, the Pacino and the De Niro's and that tough talking, even like Sylvester Stallone and, and even, you know, um, from a literary standpoint, like those were my guys, you know, um, Nietzsche and Herman Hesse and, you know, uh, Graham Greene, whoever, you know, the boys club, John Fonte. And then I think also Orange is the New Black was a very seminal change because suddenly I was, you know, best friends with like Uzo Aduba and Dash and Danielle Brooks and, and Taylor. And we were all in these uniforms and we were kind of like celebrating as this girl gang in a way. Mm-hmm. and. I don't know. It just became a very different moment that I like sort of removed myself from anything about competition. Mm -hmm. And of course, then as I moved behind the scenes, I was surprised how well received that was relative to like the struggle of being an actress. The, um, the move to writing, directing, producing was so organic. And like, I was really embraced there much more than trying out for jobs I never got. And that sort of was the final confirmation that now every beautiful, incredible woman that I met or a young woman on the cusp who was like, you would think I should be, oh, I wish I, you know, I wish I was her. Suddenly I wanted to actually get to know her because maybe I could work with her as a director or producer mm-hmm. or writer. You know what I mean? So it really shifted everything for me. I love that. And it's also the best kind of evolution. I mean, the fact that you were taking these people on in a sense because you admired them is sort of the best version of that story and they, that they admired you. It's great. It's been a really, um, you know, moving ride in that way. I've just also, I think I've, I'm, you know, such a believer in just this very <laughs> basic uh, idea of, of the arts. And maybe almost like, uh, you know, to a fault or it's, it's so uh, like simple and genuine in me. And even, uh, you know, I just went to this Scaparelli show at uh, Janixa in Paris and, and Daniel. And the, there was the, um, the exhibition was all about Elsa um, Scaparelli and the Surrealist movement and, you know, uh, her... Uh, collaborations with Cocteau and Salvador Dali and sort of, you know, Man Ray. And it really reminded me of being a teenager and kind of what I first believed in. And the idea of articulating that kind of rogue, merry prankster kind of spirit through the arts that is just, you know, it it really means a lot to me. Um, Sort of like holding that space for getting away from this, you know, assembly line propaganda that's so um, dangerous, you know, like people have to hold down the fort of 
other. And whenever that, that, that is sort of uh, in the mainstream or becomes in the conversation or zeitgeist at all, it's a sweeping achievement to kind of hold your ground and still be in the conversation at all. I'm always so moved by that because, you know, I, I, think, it, I think it matters. I really do. Tell me a place that has a lot of meaning for you. And I have a feeling you're going to say film forum. <laughs> you know me well, Lynn. You really do. That's my spot. That's my hot spot. That's where I can be found. It's my happy place. I also like it. I think I really Do you enjoy feel bad it. that they've renovated? I feel a little bad that they've renovated. I do. But I've heard of this, like, Elaine Stritch quote. Uh, maybe it's a rumored one where she says, like, oh, get over it. New York is always changing. <laughs> But my goal, and I have to say, I imagine it's yours too, maybe it already has happened for you, is to be have my name on one of the back of the chairs in uh, Film Forum. Lynn, I think we need to do this for each other. I don't know how much it costs and we raise the fund. I know there's a lot more important things happening in the world, but- You want your own chair. On some small level, I think we should get each other chairs. Okay, I I'm happy that- to, I'm, I'm there. But let me yeah. ask you a question, just so you, because this is very important. Are you a close sitter? Or are you a far back sitter in a theater? Oh, I'm last row in the corner on the aisle. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I like, I like a, you know, you wouldn't think, I think because I have the big hair, it's very misleading and like this weird accent I can't shake. Believe me, I'm trying. Uh, Stop trying. Well, you know, I, I think it seems like maybe I'm a real centerpiece kind of character, but I'm not. I'm, I'm, I love being a sort of silent observer. I love going to that theater alone and sitting in the back and just, you know, sitting there all day and taking it all in. And I, I, sort of, I have a real witness thing to me. I guess it's the, the writer in me or whatever, the traumatized child. What did you do during the lockdown? Did you just watch DCM 24-7? Or did, because they were closed, Film Forum. Yeah, no, I did, uh, I did a lot of quantum physics audiobooks. That became my, my lockdown kink. Because I think I often need like a third thing to calm down. My issue with living people altogether <laughs> in the arts is uh, that it's hard to kind of totally, I, I love to celebrate my friends' wins. I'm a firm believer that you know, any win of an ally or somebody fighting the good fight is a win for us all. So I, I, I love to celebrate my, my, my pals, you know, or people I don't know that I love what they're doing. Like, I love that movie, Tatane. Um, oh, I love it too. But uh, I loved it so much. And I think she oh, yeah, it was I loved it. so original. Yeah. Except, well, even though Cronenberg did have Crash. Yes. But what a waste that there was another movie called Crash that just ate up the real Crash, which is Cronenberg. I know. But sometimes it's like when you're watching things and you're in this business making things, it's hard to have full escapism of another world because you're thinking, it's almost like I'm taking mental notes as almost like a, a producer. And I'm like sort of doing the math. Oh my God, that production designer is excellent. I got to remember that. Da, 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 da. And, or I hate that. I'm never going to do that kind of an angle in a movie. That's the worst or why are they want this to look so digital? This is a terrible thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I can't believe people like this. And you know, but when I watch dead people, I don't have that problem. I really can, mm, that's interesting. can escape. But then more than that, it's as, uh, you know, there's this James Baldwin quote that says, uh, 
read, read, read. And when you can't read anymore, write. Mm. And in many ways, I think that I spent so much of my life sort of self-taught. You know, I have dropped out of Tisch, film and philosophy, and really just spent that time sort of reading and watching and listening to everything I could get my hands on, you know, and um, being a sort of like a sponge and a encyclopedia of that stuff that I like. And uh, so I found that I was in this place where I use that pandemic to mostly like learn all this outside information of things. I There's so much I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, and chief among them is, you know, anything not related directly to the arts. So I really spent that time, I guess, uh, listening to so many of those audiobooks because they're kind of, they're quite mathy. So they're sometimes hard to you know, it's not like reading, you know, Shelley Winter's, you know, m- memoir. I, it gets more straightforward. Um, but these things have like equations, you know, like when Einstein walked with Girdle, I'm like, Jesus, just read it to me. And I would do that while I was playing Zelda, which is a, an open world, you know, video game on the Switch. So I was beating the game, listening to these audiobooks. That's how I spent a lot of my time in the pandemic. Wow. And of course, rewriting season two of Russian Doll because I had to uh, make all these changes and cuts for like, you know, COVID, Mm. which everybody had to do, I think, in that time. So sort of like by day, you know, for 10 hours at a time, I was sort of, you know, breaking my brain, trying to kind of see how to, you know, alter the show such that we'd be able to shoot it in a global pandemic. And, you know, by night, I'd be beating the game listening to these quantum physics audiobooks to try to calm down. You're the only person I know who would find physics audiobooks calming. That's so fascinating. They really are. There's like this white noise, you know, Brick uh, talks about it with uh, Big Daddy and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. You yes. know? I, Big Daddy says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but what's going on with you, pal? And he, you know, he says, I'm just trying to hear the click. But that's you being know? drunk. You sure, but it's like in a world of mendacity, you know? What exactly. You and it's this click, this sort of white noise sound he's talking about. And for me, I really find that in those, you know, Michio Kaku talking about string theory and the future of humanity. I'm like, ah, I hear the click. All right, what's a, what's a thing in your life that has importance to you? Maybe it's this uh, audiobook. Who knows? But it could be a picture that you have. It could be, you know, a toy. It could be a anything that's kind of an inanimate object. An inanimate object? Well, I mean, I'm looking right now at this. Uh, I have a frame um, when I constructed a crossword puzzle with Deb Amlin for the New York Times. Oh, you and constructed I, it? Yes. And I happen to be staring at it. It's uh, framed here in the kitchen. I love that. How long did that take you? It took us, it took us like a couple of months, I think, like just going back and forth and sort of making the clues and making the themes and then actually like finishing the puzzle, you know, in various meetings and stuff. And I mean, let's be clear, there's no way I could have done it without her, but I cannot believe that that's something that really happened. It's just such a pure love of mine, the crossword. And it's just something I do every day and I don't always make it, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm only where I'm at. So, you know, I'm like a, a Thursday girl. Friday and Saturday, I'm screwed. Thursday um, is very, very hard. Yeah, but Sunday I'm back. 
And uh, <laughs> but Friday, Saturday, that's like my, you know, lifetime goal type stuff, uh, along with the back of a seat at the film forum. Those are my two goals, Friday, Saturday, and a seat at the film forum. I think all but, these things are going to be achieved. I think all well, of this is going to happen. Just trying to live the dream. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I really... Have find, you been doing crosswords like your whole life or is this a recent passion? No, it's only been about a decade. Mm. How did you start? Was there a particular moment that you thought, huh? Yeah, Fred, Fred and I were dating for, you know, about seven years. And like early in the relationship, I would see him doing it. I don't think I really understood an iPhone even at the time we first started dating. And I was like, what is that thing? And then it really, I don't want to brag, but boy, did I eclipse him. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, I really, I made mincemeat out of his obsession with the crossword. He was doing it sort of gently, like a, you know, a joyful thing to spend some time with. I was suddenly doing hundreds of puzzles. I was doing all the puzzles from like, they have an archive system in there. But, you know, I like an obsession. Yes. And then we would do it together and that would be really fun. That was like, that's my version of a great night. <laughs> I love that. So when you do it together, do you just read out the clues or you just look at it together? How does that work? No, you have to hold the phone very close to you. Uh, mind you, we're no longer dating. We broke up uh, almost two years ago, I guess now. Um, but, and we're, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing lots of other people and, and, and we're still very tight. So everything is kosher copacetic. But Good. I'm glad to hear it. At the time. It was, you know, you, you sit, you have to sit very close, ideally in bed so you can relax because, you know, life is tiring and you, you hold the phone, you share it between, and then you kind of, it's a push pull system. Ah. And everybody just stares at it silently. And, and you don't go, back. okay, I've got 25 across. It's not that chatty. It's really, it's more of just like, it's a lot of grunting, <laughs> pointing. <laughs> grunting, pointing and entering. And then erasing and then going, I know, I know. <laughs> and you would just do, you were much faster than he was by the end. I am very quick fingered, but I'm quick with a clue. But there's certain clues that I really can't get. You know, you really see the value of collaboration when you do the crossword because you see that different brains are wired differently. So like, I would be very quick to create the shape of the puzzle, but then there would still be these giant gaps. And then Fred would come in and I'd be like, Jesus, how did you know that? You know, and all of a sudden the whole puzzle comes together and you see the beauty of why in this life you need multiple brains, you know, to solve the thing. And so how did you go from we're, we're doing them to we're creating one? I don't recall. I think maybe, you know, I think a lot of people are spending time on social media embroiled in sort of very negative things. I try to spend my time on social media tweeting at the New York Times crossword people. So <laughs> it really changes the relationship to it because, you know, it's such a narrow niche kind of tweet that there's really nothing to comment on, is there, other than you crazy crossword head? <laughs> um, You've seen the documentary, right? Gosh, I don't know that I have. Oh, you would love it. It's a crosswords documentary. It's all people like you. Oh, great. I should watch that. And they have uh, Bill Clinton, who's not as good as you might think. And you know what? Not shocked. Yeah, uh, I wasn't either, actually. But I thought, you know, if you're going to be in the actual documentary, you might be a whiz. Yeah, or at least, like, maybe fake it or something for the knock. Uh, well, yeah, so I guess I just said, 
developed this very intimate relation. Every puzzle, every day that came out, I was tweeting about it like it was, you know, new news. Uh, and would you would you judge them like better puzzles? Were oh, supposed yes. To- I didn't like this clue. I do. What a great theme this week. You know, oh, my God, the Wednesday is sensational. I hate this Thursday. Really interactive. And so at some point, they, I think they just reached out to me and said, is this something you'd like to do? I, I was so I was so I was terrified. Really? This is such a big deal. You know, it's all I was talking about. Oh my God, I love that. And then of course we, you know, we made the theme all that jazz because I love Bob Fosse and so much and the movie and that was fun and very tricky to work around all that jazz. I don't recommend it. Was that your idea to do all that jazz just because your love of Fosse? I mean, I'm guessing it was no coincidence. Yes. I see. Okay. It's, and how many clues are there? It's That's a lot from one movie or did you just branch oh, no, out? No, you don't, it's just sort of like one of the themes. In the I, see, of it. I see. You clue all around it in a million different directions. So you could go you to know? Cabaret if you needed to. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean, you just do uh, whatever, you know. Right. Uh, I'll have to look it up. 44 down, Ali Blank, Ali Oop. That's a very, that's, that's a New York Times classic, meaning they can also be non sequitur. It's not the... That only comes up in like one or two clues. I see. Okay. But you did have like Gwen Verdon in there, even though she's not in that movie? Uh, no, I believe we only had Fosse and all that jazz quite literally. Okay. You're very, yeah. you're very precise. That's how the puzzle works. I don't make the rules. That's the puzzle. <laughs> what did you do it? How did you lose it? Was it? Okay, this is my favorite question, and I bet you have an amazing answer. What was something in your life that looked like the worst thing that could have happened and then turned out to be a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's been many. And it's uh, it's always worth remembering, you know, when, when things that are seemingly negative happen, you know, they often turn out to be quite positive. And, uh, you know, chief among them, obviously, would just be you know, it was harrowing kind of, you know, dropping out of society and life and, um, you know, uh, being a drug addict and then coming back was really, really rough. And, uh, you know, I guess what I didn't know was that those years away, I was sort of, you know, getting all this information on how to be a person that was really going to, you know, serve me. And uh, sort of all that information and research, for lack of a better term, was going to wind up being, you know, the sum total of my life's work sort of shifting from, you know, an actress and someone else's vision to uh, somebody who had my own what to say. So that was obviously the big one. And uh, yet still with that, armed with that knowledge, I, I would still experience things. Like I remember I had one boyfriend who was just awful. And, uh, you know, he had cheated on me and stuff. And it was really, it really messed me up. I remember uh, Chloe sitting me down at lunch at Mogador in New York. And she said, you need to understand there's this other girl and he's with her and the dog at the beach. It's on Facebook. And I said, what is Facebook? And <laughs> she was like, Jesus Christ, trying to catch me up to the new world. Cause I'd been so out of touch and it just, you know, wrecked me. And I, I, I look back now and I hardly remember the guy's name. I, I 
almost can't remember that that happened at all. And, you know, I don't want to be living in his weird apartment with the dirty bathroom in Brooklyn. That seems like a nightmare. Uh, so, you know what I mean? At the time, my God, was it big. But that could have been this whole other sort of, you know, journey that I was so sure was, you know, and I remember actually, again, Nora Ephron really helped me around that because it was right around the time of that play. It was the same guy. I don't know why he's really coming up in this uh, interview. This is his time to shine, I guess. And and she said- We won't say his name. We won't give him that credit. Yeah, that's too far. And he said, she said to me, oh no, dummy, that's your second husband. You're looking for your third husband. <laughs> and I've been married a total of zero times. But I was like, absolutely, Nora, because you're you. <laughs> but I know what she means, don't you? That's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And she had three husbands, and the third one was the charm. Exactamundi. So it's a funny thing that, you know, and I, I think about that as relates to so many things. It's It's really, really hard when we you know, put our whole selves into things and, and, oh, this isn't the expected outcome. And it's, it's so hard to do that, you know, pull back. I would say one of the joys of this production company, Animal Pictures, that, that Maya and I have um, uh, with uh, Danielle renfrew Barons is, uh, you know, runs it with us. And the joy of it is I can suddenly see other people's projects and their scripts and their cuts and edits and, you know, marketing campaigns and whatever, and casting choices and everybody when you're, you know, actually making something, there's so much to do. And each decision, you know, becomes incredibly myopic because it feels like, you know, it's just death by a million paper cuts. Like anything that kind of goes wrong, it feels the stakes have never been higher to sort of, you know, realize a vision. And yet when you're a producer, you have this sort of objective stance, you know, which is more about what Amy Poehler would always say, you're at the bottom of show mountain. We've got to get, we've got to get this show up the hill. And suddenly it's much easier to sort of note somebody else's script and say, I think you can lose this whole scene. You don't need it to make your schedule or whatever, you know? And so it's just an interesting thing, I guess. When you did Slums of Beverly Hills, did you think your life was going to change then? I thought you were astonishing in that movie. I remember the minute I saw you, I just thought you were so incredible. And I'm a girl from LA. So there was so much truth in that movie. Yeah, thank you. I love Tamara Jenkins, who uh, directed it. And and at the know. time, there were so few female directors. Yeah, and it was. It was pretty, you know, Tamara and I are still uh, very tight. And, uh, you know, it was really, it was really interesting. Actually, the other night I did this thing where I was interviewing her and her husband, Jim Taylor, who's uh, Alexander Payne's writing partner for a Writers Guild panel. and. Mary Heron came, who, uh, uh, of course, directed American Psycho. And we were just sort of talking about, and I always find stuff like that very moving, you know, like they were speaking to me as almost like, you know, one, you know, as if I was in the club and I'm always so moved by that kind of thing. And uh, I was saying, oh, it's, you know, so scary releasing a second season. And they're like, it's always this way and it's always okay. You know what I mean? And Mary was saying that with American Psycho, how everybody, she's like, that's my most referenced work now. Everybody talks about Christian Bale in that movie. And she was like, at the time, nobody understood it. You know what I mean? She was like, it killed my career at the time. And now it's all anybody will talk about sort of 20 years later, you know? And I bring that up to say that 
with Tamara and Sons of Beverly Hills, it was it was wild because that movie has aged so beautifully and she was so brilliant. And it was it was uh, everybody knew it, but she was really like under the weight of being a woman. Like they just it was too sort of this idea of it's like too much because she had big hair and she had boobs. And that was obviously I was playing a sort of version of her. Yeah. And you were kind of extraordinary looking. You didn't look like your typical starlet. I guess, you know, and uh, yeah, it was very interesting to kind of watch that go down, you know, and hear her talk about it now. How old were you? I was probably like 17, 18. And so she was probably like, you know, 27 or 30. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not super dissimilar from like Jamie Babbitt, but I'm a cheerleader. Um, She was the director of that. And like at the time, they seemed like full grownups to me. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like three <laughs> decades later and they see my, you're like, oh my God, you were such a baby. And yeah, I, I just remember like Tamara would wear these little denim short shorts and I could tell that that made people uncomfortable and it was so lame. You know what I mean? Like this idea that she shouldn't be so female while walking around, like holding up lenses, you know, and setting shots. but. I love her. I love that movie. I'm still so close to Marissa Tomei and Kevin Corrigan and Alan Arkin. I love so much. Alan Arkin as your dad was one of the great pairings of all time. Yeah. I mean, he was crazy in that movie, but you were so endearing. I just loved you. Thank you. But it was so, it was, I mean, it was great casting because you were so unique. Yeah, I really, I, I love that movie. I'm so, you know, it's up there. It's funny. I've been doing this for, I guess, 35 years. And uh, or maybe more. And there's like a few things that I really like are in my heart. You know, like Pee Wee's Playhouse and Slums of Beverly Hills are really up there with Russian you know, Doll. Russian Doll. Russian Doll's remarkable. And it's uh, both seasons are just remarkable. And it's impressive that you were able to pull off a second season because I think that's very hard to do. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it really was always in our you know, sort of vision that it would be somewhat anthological, you know, um, many ways, it's almost more of a limited series, I guess, that just in terms of, I think we always saw it as like reorienting the world season to season, much more so than telling the story, but it has been super strange of just, uh, the way that people kind of like love something so much that they don't want to see more of it as opposed to it. Just, I would just say, like, that would be my note to audiences and, you know, common at large is like, why, why would you love something that people make so much and then say, but we don't want more from that? You know, it's a, <laughs> very, very mixed messages. Uh, a lane. Yeah, I mean, that show is the, the great love of my life. I, I love that show. Well, that might be the answer to my last question, which is, what is a purely joyful time or memory or part of your life? What would, what would be purely joyful? What comes to mind? Well, yeah, I guess for me, that's more swimming in the ocean. I'm really a sucker for a vacation or like... You're, good, you're good at vacations? That surprises me. I, huh. Well, I'm not, I'm not great at taking them, but once I'm there, <laughs> and you know, I, I do a lot during them. Don't get me wrong. Like I can't totally put it down, but if I see like Rupee or my dogs are like running towards me, like aggressively in the sand with uh, the ocean lapping, and then I jump in and 
Uh, really, that makes me happy as hell. What kind uh, of dogs do you have? Oh, I just have the one. Uh-huh. Uh, I often lie and say that she's a Rottweiler, but <laughs> she's just a little poodle mix. And her name's Root Beer? Yes. That's so cute. I love that name. Yeah, she's aggressively adorable. <laughs> How old and is she? she? Well, she's 10 now. Oh, wow. So she's no, no spring chicken, but she still behaves like a puppy. That's the best. Yeah, she doesn't look a day over one. Thank you so much, and it's wonderful to speak to you. And I think the world of you. You too, Lynn. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg. The podcast is produced by Michael Becker with sound engineering by Rich Zerbini and Max Solomon at The Hangar Studios and additional audio engineering by Kara Johnson. The theme song was written and performed by Blondin Carr. Special thanks to Sarah Moonves, Editor-in-Chief of W Magazine, and, as always, Zora. Don't forget to follow W Magazine on Instagram or wmagazine.com, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch my screen test videos with people like Penelope Cruz, Denzel Washington, and George Clooney. Thanks again.